0: What is an archetype? Does anybody know? An archetype is a character within the story that we share. It's a shared story, and it's often a story that's deeply embedded within us. And it's something that we recognize, often without even realizing that we're recognizing it. I think it's the thing that drives successful storytelling. So when you're reading a book and you're really into it, you're going from event to event and things line up, events are happening, and it's just resonating with you and you're not consciously really thinking, oh this is because this connects to this in my life or this. But why do certain things resonate? So we're going to pick apart Harry Potter today, I'm going to show you an example of how that, one of the most successful stories ever written um, that had 10 year olds reading 400 page books, I think it was successful because of its use of archetypes. but. J.K. Rowling wrote that novel, the first one, when she was a single mother on welfare. Um, And I don't think she went through and listed out archetypes when she was structuring it. But I think it was successful because she followed her gut and your gut resonates with archetypes. So I think when you tell a successful story, you're finding events, you're like, oh, that matches up with this. And what do I want to have happen after this? And this event really interests me. And I, But I think the ones that are most successful and that resonate with audiences do so because they connect to something deeper within us, which is the same thing that an archetype does. Um, so, for example, Harry Potter lives under the cupboard, lives in the cupboard under the stairs with the Dursleys, who are not his parents. Um, and that's an idea that many is an archetype in itself, and many of us have. The movie about the girl who finds out she's a princess, um, which has been told in so many different forms, realizing your royalty and not knowing it. Harry Potter receives a letter, finds out that these parents you have that are boring and awful, you're actually special. These aren't your real parents. You actually have a whole other set of parents, and actually You're famous in a whole nother life. That's something that resonates deeply with a lot of us and I think a lot of readers, just that idea alone. Many of us, we feel, we walk around feeling like we're the stars of our own movies. Um, Now, and the idea of two sets of parents is an archetype. That's going into deeper of having like, because you're going to grow up, eventually your parents die, but you still have an obligation to the world and that's an idea of there's still parents beyond your two parents. Your, your parents are not the only thing that you have to live up to. There's outside responsibility. Um, okay, so Harry Potter goes to the castle, the magic castle, Hogwarts. And I think there's a, an archetype in the sorting hat which represents order and everything's peaceful. They are divided up by personality traits, almost, into different houses. Everything's going well. And do you remember what happens in the second book? At the end of the second book, what is lurking under the castle? That monster, the basilisk. What's a basilisk? It's a snake. Yeah, it's a snake. It's a snake. That kind of looks like a dragon. Like, yeah. like its front looks like a dragon, but like its behind is like a snake. Yeah. And the snake is an archetype that resonates with us as well. Why? I think it's evolutionary. A long time ago, we used to die from snake bites. People still die from snake bites. But when you're walking through the woods today, and you see something on the ground shaped like a snake out of the periphery, the bottom periphery of your vision, you will react to it faster than you can think. That's subconscious, just like an archetype. And it's a survival mechanism to this day. Um, many people have dreams, reoccurring dreams of snakes in their dreams. Has anyone ever had a dream with a snake in it? Um, so, where is, the, where is the basilisk? What, what happens when you see the basilisk? What happens when a, when a small animal sees, um, something that could eat it? A rabbit sees a fox. Or you see something that's frightened. If you, what happens when you're frightened? Freeze, it's a survival mechanism, right? What happens, when, what happens when people see the basilisk? They're turned to stone, right? So, the basilisk, where does the basilisk, basilisk live? Under the floor of Hogwarts, under the magic castle. The magic castle, everything's peaceful. But under the surface is the unknown. All of the chamber of secrets, right? The first book, the first Harry Potter book, everything happens under the surface as well. When he goes down there, I think, and he confronts Voldemort with the Sorcerer's Stone. That all happens underneath the castle. This is an archetype that echoes to the fact that outside this classroom and in the world, just beneath the surface is the potential of danger and chaos and disorder and the unknown, right? What does Harry Potter have to do? This is the hero's journey. What does he do, Pam? I don't know. He voluntarily enters the unknown to try and save Ginny, right? It's important that he voluntarily does it. If, he, if, he were, if Harry Potter were forced to by Snape or somebody, it's like Harry Potter, you got to go down. Oh, man. All right, fine. I'm going to go do this. I don't think it would have resonated with the reader. Because the hero's journey resonates. The voluntary acceptance of going into the unknown to face the beast that makes us freeze when we see it. That's the hero's journey, the voluntary acceptance of that. So he descends into the depths. And what happens? The snake bites him. And he basically is is on the verge of death. Why did she include that? To show you that danger is real that when you do voluntarily go into the depths which is reality out there beneath the surface is danger is the unknown the world is uh, is the unknown there's and it's always going to be there sure. and you're gonna have to decide whether to voluntarily accept it or not but when you do you can get hurt There's not there's no guarantee you're gonna come out of it she could have had Harry go down there and save Ginny and never be bitten and almost die, and the phoenix come. A phoenix, what's that an archetype of? What happens to a phoenix? It lives, it dies in a 100 years, and what, it goes to ashes and the egg, and then it rehatches and is reborn. What happens to Harry Potter in the very last book? He dies, goes to death, and is reborn. That is symbolic, that is an archetype of the hero's journey. Think about when you learn something, you can't learn something without allowing something, a preconceived notion to die, basically, or to let go of something. That's, that's how we grow, that's literally growth. Think about like burning off um, weaknesses, and burn, that's, how, that's becoming stronger. And that's, that's what the hero is doing. Um, so he gets bit by the snake. So yes, the danger's real. Don't take, take it seriously. The phoenix arrives. The phoenix belongs to who? Dumbledore. What is this? This is an archetype we see in so many stories. Think about it. Obi-Wan Kenobi, um, Lord of the Rings, Gandalf. He's the, the mentor figure. And there's literally a, literally a formula for the hero's journey. Um, I think it dismisses the archetype a bit. I think the archetype has more importance than a lot of screenwriters want to give it. But the mentor figure, the wise mentor figure, is often the one who initiates the hero on the journey, which is what happens in Harry Potter when he receives the letter. Hey kid, you're actually special. These aren't your real parents. Guess what, you lucked out. Just like the glass slipper, just like the girl who finds out she's a princess and gets to go, go off on that adventure. It's something that's deeply ingrained with us. Many of you probably feel like, I'm so embarrassed by my parents. These can't be my real parents. I must be more special than this. Like, I'm actually, this can't just be everything there is. There has to be more than this. This can't just be life. There's got to be a magic castle out there. So these are things that are deeply ingrained in us. Okay. Now, I just want to touch upon the other key ingredient to screenwriting and telling stories in general. The most important thing in a scene is what's not being said, all right? So in a scene, we have the ocean, we have boats. Each boat, think of the boats as words. Words are just tools we use to represent what we're trying to communicate, our intentions, right? The ocean, here's the ocean. The boats are just floating on top of the ocean and the ocean is the subtext. The most important thing in a scene is what's not being said. So if I, if I say something to someone and they misunder, why take the words literally if my intentions were to say something else? It's what I'm trying to communicate and all we can do, that's what, as humans, we, all we can do to try and get at the message that we're trying to use is use the tools we have which are our words and that's, simple, that's all they are. They're just tools floating on the surface. Tied into what, the majority of communication is nonverbal for this very reason. Like I can read Bruno right now by just looking at your body language. Okay? And that's all we'll say on that. All right.